Hey, Randy, we're going to plan a podcast party. Yeah, Lily. And I'd like to invite a guest. Yes. And I'd like to invite all of our guests. Ooh. And I'd like to invite all of our fans. Do we have any fans? <laughs> yeah. And we should have cake. Ooh, and ice cream. Yes. And we should also have some very cool music. And can we have a giraffe? No. <laughs> um well that sounds like it's going to be a great party can we live up to it i have no idea but it would be fun to try but what was that all about again so that was one of my favorite improv games it's called yes and and we did it because of today's guest david farkas who is with us to talk about how to bring the principles of improv to product development yes and he wrote a book called Collaborative Improv. Yes. And now we can stop the game, Randy. <laughs> and just get straight to our chat with David. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Every week we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we improve our practice. Aside from conferences in London, San Francisco, Singapore, Hamburg, and Manchester, there's also free product tanks in more than 185 cities, and there's probably one near you. Find out about them on mindtheproduct.com, where you can also catch up on past episodes, videos from the conferences, read great articles, and learn about the training that we do. David, thank you so much for joining us on the product experience. Before we jump into all these questions about improv and how to use it, can you just give us a little bit of background and introduce yourself? Sure thing. And thanks for having me. So my name is David Farkas. I'm a user experience consultant strategist. I work currently with EPAM Systems. And my main focus is on everything from research and strategy. I've been doing improv theater for a little over a decade now. There's a few year hiatus in between. But I've always applied its approach and thoughts to what I do as a designer and a consultant. So that's definitely what I'm uh, here to talk about and what I apply to a lot of my work. And while Lily and I are both familiar with the improv scene, for anyone who isn't familiar with it, can you just give a little bit of an overview of what it is and why we're talking about it today? Yeah, so a lot of people probably think of improvisation if they think in uh, North America and the States as uh, Second City or Upright Citizens Brigade. We're all probably somewhat familiar with it with Saturday Night Live. Really, improvisation is anything unscripted or unrehearsed, uh, but I really take it as listening and storytelling, and that's the connection, the listening and the storytelling, what I bring into my work as a practitioner. How do you use it in the world of product and UX? Why are we even talking about it for, for this? Yeah, so I could be as broad as saying I use it in all aspects of product design, but I think the main areas I use it is in relationships and understanding what people are striving for. So whether it's my colleagues or my stakeholders, we all have different motivations and goals. And if we take things on the surface or try to respond to the obvious thing, we often are going to miss the mark. And improv has taught me a number of lessons and skills to really understand what people are, are striving for in their conversation. And how did you first get into improvisation? That is a pretty long and winding story. But I think the simplest version is uh, I was very heavily involved in student life at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And uh, one of my uh, colleagues, one of the other students, invited me to join them at the improv troupe. They suggested it would 
give me some familiarity and comfort in what I was doing within student life. And they definitely weren't wrong in that regard. It made me very comfortable doing things like student tours and working with uh, first year orientation. And then it's just proven to snowball into a lot of professional skills as well. And how did you first bring it into your professional workplace? The first time I brought it in, it was quite by accident. It was uh, about a decade ago. I was working with a financial services client doing some field research. The client was actually shadowing us for the research. And we also had daily retrospectives planned, like an hour long meeting. Because the client was riding along with us the whole time, there was no need for them to really have a debrief session. So we had this unstructured hour, hour and a half every day that I was starting to just, you know, pull from my designer toolkit different activities we could do. And that was sort of the first time I think I associated the idea of unscripted and unplanned improv with what we do as product designers. And going back to when you got into improvisation, um, you you said it kind of helped you get into your life at university and stuff. Do you think that it's a tool specifically for people to enable them to come out of the role that they're in and try out a new position? Or like, how would you describe the feeling of doing improvisation to someone else? So I think the feeling for me is probably just, you know, sheer and utter relief. It's I often joke improv is cheaper than a shrink because I get to sort of remove myself from the real world and whatever I brought to, mm-hmm. brought into the you know practice or the show that day. I heard you say something though really interesting though, uh, I think, which is, uh, do I feel that improv could be something that people use to get out of their skin or out of their comfort zone? And it's definitely one opportunity for that. There's a uh, just a sense of trust and a sense of belonging that anyone who's come to an improv show uh, to, to perform and to practice, folks come from all walks of life and all, you know, makes and models, so to speak. And it's a very welcoming community, uh, I've found. So one of the things that you advise is for, uh, for people not to call it improv in the workplace. Why not? Improv generally implies theater, uh, performing, comedy, and that makes a lot of people very nervous. So I don't think anyone would ever, you know, to give someone a microphone, even those of us that present at conferences and do workshops to say, you know, here's a microphone, go perform is a very daunting thing. And yeah, you're you're laughing a little bit because you've probably had that experience. And what we want to do is, you know, make it a safe place to come up with ideas, to validate, to make suggestions as we're designing products. So by removing the word improv from our vocabulary, by calling it, you know, collaborative sessions or design studios or just a warm up exercise, I think it lowers the threshold and lowers some of the fear that people have when they hear, you know, improv and they suddenly think of, you know, acting and performing and some of the great comedians. And why would I want to introduce it? What's a situation where things have stalled and this might help kick things going again? So I think. It's a little hard for me to describe that in a succinct example, but I think we've all probably been in conversations where we are talking past one another. Either we come to a meeting without a clear agenda and different people have different goals, or we are debating the technical feasibility of a product of a product, of a problem. And the technologist has one perspective, the business has another, and the creative has a third. What I find is improv, the, the muscles of listening, the muscles of being present and not necessarily rushing to say what I want to say, but to hear what you're giving me instead, those are opportunities and those are are muscles that really help me 
achieve success in those team meetings and in those situations rather than fumbling around and necessarily talking past each other for an hour. So how do you introduce it? It's not, hey, guys, let's do play a game or let's do some improv, let's perform. What's the, the way that you bring everyone on board to being open to trying something different? Yeah, so there, there's two sides to it. One is I think there's ways to bring people on board, but I think it also is our the only people we can truly impact are ourselves. So it's something that I try to live by. And uh, with writing collaborative improv, something that I try to offer other people to take this muscle and take these skills on. That being said, you asked, how do I bring other people on this journey with me? Because it's definitely more helpful as we can sort of make everyone inclusive. And I think there's a lot we can let borrow from traditional workshop exercises, the rules of everything is true. And, you know, everyone's welcome to provide ideas is a really good way for that. I think another common challenge we face, though, is just simple things like folks talking over one another. And especially in more Western cultures, we tend to uh, speak over someone before they truly finish their thought. And uh, there's a improv exercise called Red Ball Thank You, which is all about passing and sharing focus in a very slow measured way. And we can introduce that type of thing into a extra, into a meeting with just a koosh ball and sort of, you know, whoever has the the ball, it's the talking stick or the talking ball. And that person is allowed to share their ideas. So a way that we can bring some of the exercises and put them in small doses through our meetings. What other kind of um, actual exercises do you have that you use as like your go-to improv toolkit for working with teams? So I would say probably the most common is also what happens in any Improv 101 class, which is the whole notion of yes and. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes and is the improv game where, you know, I always do it as an exercise in, in party planning. So the three of us would be creating a party and let's create a party for all of the guests of the podcast. Yes, and let's make sure that we have our cameras on because we're all located in different cities. Yes, and, yes, and, yes, and. And we don't have to necessarily call it yes, and, but we can say let's brainstorm for a little bit, only adding to the idea, coming up with the biggest solution we can. And that, I think, is uh, another exercise I do pretty often at all stages of uh, product development. So I've always loved this from the perspective of it fits in really well with the double diamond approach with the let's ask questions and then we get to answers and the idea generation side of there's never a bad idea. And yes, and, and that whole idea works really well. Does it also work when you're trying to narrow in and figure out uh, what the right answer is or where we want to go next? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, So yes, yes, and is very good for the divergent thinking. When we get to the, what you're describing is the convergent thinking, I actually shift it slightly and I like the idea of yes, if. Um, One important thing to note about yes, and is Saying yes to someone does not mean you agree with them, but it's about acknowledging that person and what they are sharing with the team and sharing for the product. So a lot of improv isn't necessarily about, you know, getting on board and absolutely doing it, but it's about acknowledging what people are bringing to the table. And when you start talking about that convergent thinking, yes, if really allows for some of those more detailed uh, areas of of exploration. So if we think about something like single sign-on, there might be a lot of complexities around the legacy systems, different technologies on mobile devices, anything like that. And instead of saying yes, and we acknowledge it and we'll do something even more, we can say yes, if we acknowledge it and then qualify it with different technical limitations that the products might have to take into consideration. And so you talk in your book about some of the guidelines that you have for improv. 
Um, what are your kind of the main guidelines that people should be aware of? Yeah, so I do outline nine guidelines in the book, and I think they're all important, obviously, or they wouldn't have been included. And I actually started with 10 and narrowed it down. So there was uh, already some trading there. The first important one, though, is definitely yes and. Uh, don't negate that acknowledgement, that acceptance of what people are bringing to the conversation. But two other very important ones is supporting your fellow players. Design is a team sport, so we don't have to be the best designer or the best technologist or the best project manager. As long as we can support each other into bringing great things together, that's what we really need to remember. And then the other really important one, if I had to choose sort of two or three, would be listening to the scene. That notion of active listening, anyone who is a researcher knows the value of listening and sort of looking for that interesting thing, that strange, unusual thing. Anyone who's in sales understands the value of listening for what the, our clients, our stakeholders aren't telling us where additional opportunity might be. So yes, anding, supporting one another and listening are probably the key key elements there. Which are great rules to just live by anyway, I guess. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting notion also, because I'm not trying to break anyone's worldview by saying improv is an answer or the answer. It's a number of skill sets that I think, whether you're a product designer or uh, been in improv teams with uh, medical professionals, anyone in any field, regardless of, again, background or education or uh, skill sets, anyone can really benefit from what we do as uh, improvisers. Is there anything to this that we shouldn't have learned in kindergarten? <laughs> Probably not. No, that's um, that's a really great observation. The things of improv, you know, do unto others, be kind, ask people why they're upset or why they're feeling a, a certain way, you know, motivations and let people finish. All these notions are key to just being decent humans. And yeah, we should learn them in kindergarten. <laughs> I, I love that notion. We could get rid of all of this if, you know, we just listened in kindergarten. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I realized when I asked it that it might have sounded snarky. I really didn't mean it that way. It was everything you said is things that I've got a young child. I feel like these are all things that he should know and is being taught every day in school. I, I couldn't agree more, really. And I think it's really one of those areas that if we just put on that, you know, childish mind, not not childish mindset, but the perspective of a child and sort of that, you know, desire to be curious and that desire to know more. And if we talk to young children, they are adamant that they are right, even when they are wrong. Sometimes I have a niece and nephew, both under five years old, and their convictions sometimes are so beautifully wrong, <laughs> but so beautiful. And I want to see more of that as we as we debate one another uh, to design products and as we have those conversations. So I had um, a really interesting improv experience where I did theatre studies actually when I was at school, um, but then didn't do any drama for a very long time and went to an improv session just uh, out of the blue, basically. And um, in this improv session, I had this like huge breakthrough in sort of my perspective on how people perceived me and how I perceive myself. Have you had any moments in your 10 years of doing improv where you've had like huge breakthroughs um, with the teams that you've been working with, either in a work setting or um, or outside? Yeah, absolutely. So I think from a 
proper improv perspective, I've learned just how much of myself I bring to the characters. And any of my friends who've seen me perform say that I was just playing a different version of myself on stage, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is both uh, delightful and horrifying that I can be so raw. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When thinking about it, though, from a work perspective, something I've been uh, talking a lot about lately is, are you a robot, a pirate, or a ninja? And I can't take credit for that terminology. There's uh, actually a book of that name uh, in the improv space. And it really is, what type of communicator are you? What type of presenter are you? Uh, So robots are very uh, methodical. They understand sort of what they're going to do first, second, and third. Uh, pirates, if you think of a pirate in any, you know, cartoon movie, come swinging into the ship, uh, you know, guns going off, uh, cutlass swinging, things like that. And just the goal is to get to the other side of the boat. And then ninjas are very quiet, very selective in what they say. But when they when they say something, when they do something, it is very precise and very much impactful to what the whole team is doing. Um, I found that with improv, I am very much a robot, but at work, I'm much more of a pirate. And that was a distinction that I only came to in the last year or two as I truly started to get deeper into what it means to be an improviser and what it means to sort of have that self-awareness and and that uh, presence of self. Do you think it would, for those people who want to experiment with this in work, do you think it's better to start by going to other improv workshops outside of work and, and playing with it a bit before bringing it into work? Or do you think you can just dive right in? When you say to dive right in, do you mean to lead uh, for folks to lead it as uh, within their own work environment? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think there's definitely a comfort in vocabulary people need to be any degree of you know facilitation in this. Now, I think one of the beauties of what we do as product designers is uh, very many of us generally stay uh, one lesson ahead of uh, the group, so to speak. <laughs> so I, I, I think the threshold is uh, very low to um, to achieve uh, mastery or achieve the ability to facilitate. Hopefully collaborative improv is one resource folks can grab uh, littered full of uh, activities and resources that can provide a vocabulary and a baseline set of activities to conduct and perform. I would actually say, though, before facilitating at the office or before going into a workshop, just go see a show. There's tons of small community theaters and small independent improv nights in almost any city I've I've visited. I try to see an improv show, and it's very easy to see what improv is. Um, There's a lot of bad improv there I will warn folks about, but I think that's also pretty relieving because if you see people who, like myself, who say I'm an improviser and I'm doing, you know, mediocre improv sometimes the bar is very low to to start start performing to start playing to start just uh, flexing some of these exercises in a professional space and I think that's one of the things I love about it actually is that you can or in certainly in the workshops that I've been in there's been a real acceptance of playing with the idea of of improvisation and of accepting like being embarrassed or feeling like you failed at something, but there's technically nothing, you know, there technically is no failure. So one of the questions I've got for you, David, is uh, in terms of the specific times to use this, you've talked about using it when people are not really listening to each other well, trying to build a rapport. What about when you're trying to better understand your customers and you might have some personas? Is that an appropriate time to start playing around and trying to put yourself in your customer's shoes? 
Yeah, absolutely. So there's, uh, I mean, when we think about just personas and improv at its core, I mean, what makes a good improv show are the details of who our characters are, where we are, what we're doing, what we want from each other. Those, So those are all the tenets of a good persona, of a good customer journey, and anything like that. And then I think what also is really interesting is just how we can uh, get in the mindset of those people and understand that. And there's um, different exercises I, I sometimes litter into a broader product experience to, to understand some of that as well. So what other exercises would you recommend? And are there, are there other specific times in the development process that you would say it's a really good technique to, to rely on? Yeah, so I think some things we can use are already in our design vocabulary, whether it's Wizard of Oz testing or body storming, uh, which comes from uh, the game storming book. Uh, those are really good exercises and activities. One specific improv exercise I like is something I call walk in the park. It's sort of where you just have everyone uh, walking around the room at their normal gait, at their normal cadence. And then you start to have them be pulled by imaginary strings, pulled by their forehead, pulled by their knees, pulled by their shoulders. And that starts to allow us to see how people, how our body language starts to impact our uh, mental perception of the world. And especially as we start to deal with more complicated uh, products, things that might be uh, financial or health related, we can start to actually put ourselves in the mindset, physically in the mindset of our users. And then as we start to think about how our customers are feeling, we might be able to design with a little bit more empathy. And do you find that every team goes for this? I mean, you know, I can imagine the looks on um, my team's face if I say, right, walk around the room and they'll get pulled in a different direction. They'll probably just look at me like I was completely crazy. Um, but is there a technique to warm people up into this and can it work every time or is there just some teams or people that it just doesn't work with? Uh, th there are definitely times it doesn't work. And I think one time it doesn't work is probably if there's just too short of a time period, too short of an exercise. Uh, one thing I found, though, that works re really well is, as silly as it sounds, knowing your audience. Uh, there was one exercise I had uh, probably about five years ago. We did a, a warm-up version of Yes And at the first you know hour of a three-day series of, of fairly rigorous technical and design uh, product workshops. And we got around this group of 25 people, uh, my colleagues and the client stakeholders alike. And one of the stakeholders was sort of like, why are we doing this? I don't understand. And I knew my audience. I was able to talk with some of the clients beforehand. And without raising a finger, four of the clients turned to that person and said, we're doing this to loosen you up. So it was one of the times <laughs> where I, I could not have been more proud of everyone around me because everyone sort of knew why I was doing it. It was specifically for that person. And it really just encouraged me to, to find those opportunities. So I think it, it works more often than not, but it's definitely uh, important to know your audience. Does it work with new teams, people who don't know each other really well? I guess that, that might be an example of it right there. Or do you generally want a, a core of people who are already comfortable with each other? Yeah, it, I think it benefits with all teams. Uh, I mean, I run workshops with 30, 40 strangers at a time. It's just mostly about starting small and starting easy. So there are exercises like word at a time story, which is really good to do in person where you sort of build a sentence literally one word at a time. Or for remote teams, there are exercises like sentence waterfall, where everyone just puts words into the chat tool and then everyone hits enter at the same time. Any way to get folks, especially if they are strangers and haven't worked together, I think this is a really good way to introduce sort of the human element of us designing products together 
um, it's, it's a valuable tool for sure. So David, in your book, you've got this amazing quote I wanted to ask you about and ask you to unpack a little bit. Uh, someone once said to you, I can't trust someone until they failed large enough to lose the fear of risking failure. When did they say that to you? What did they mean by it? Yeah. So, uh, that was said, um, uh, his name is Brian. He's still, I count him as one of my best friends and we've worked together a few times. So the, when he gave me this quote, it was, uh, almost 10 years ago, working on a financial services client, we were on the train back and I was boasting all of the successes of the project. The research was going well. The designs were all being approved. Uh, the researcher and Brian both having a number of years experience on me, um, have been, you know, a huge part, like team effort, all of, all of the things. And he was sort of shaking his head at me thinking that, I couldn't know what success is until I failed. And a few years later, I actually had an opportunity to work with Brian at a more of a startup type of setting, crafting the design experience design approach. And quite frankly, I failed. It uh, took about 10 months or so, and really I couldn't get things off the ground. And what I found in hindsight was I wasn't pushing myself. I wasn't following my instincts. In improv, there's this notion of uh, follow your feet. If you are standing on the sidelines and your foot sort of, you know, itches you forward, follow your foot, go on the scene, join the scene. Uh, you don't have to have everything fully fleshed out, fully thought out, fully formed to go and sort of make make something up and explore it. And much the same way in uh, product design, we're going to mess up, we're going to make mistakes, but having that willingness to explore an idea and understand it uh, is really important there. So the first project that he, he said this to you on, was that not going as well as you thought, or he just wanted to make sure that you would really learn to appreciate uh, when things were going well? Much more the latter. He wanted me to appreciate when things were going well and the fact that, uh, in his opinion, and now uh, many years later, I agree, you don't know how well something's going until you've experienced the, the darker days of product design as well. So in all your years of um, working with teams and doing improv with teams, are there any sort of potential risks with bringing it into a team? You know, we've talked about when it sometimes doesn't work with certain um, people, but are there certain situations where it, it doesn't work? I think what you're hitting on, uh, hinting around, is the idea that we need to design products and create improv with folks that we trust. And trust takes time to build, uh, but part of how we can have that trust is understanding that we might overstep, we might make mistakes, and that we can trust each other to raise those mistakes to our attention and have honest conversations about them. So in improv, I've overstepped and made comments to my scene partners that uh, in any type of social setting would be deemed uh, inappropriate, and those type of comments have been made towards me. And we understand that things are happening quickly. And after the scene, we'll say uh, what made us uncomfortable and why. And we'll have a sort of a teachable moment conversation about that. And I think the same thing has to happen and uh, be brought into our product design. So uh, a lot of conversations around ethics and design and what's going on uh, with the ethics of design and how we treat each other well, how we design good products. We're going to overstep at the drawing board. We're going to come up with something that might violate someone's privacy or anything like that during the ideation phase. What's important is to make sure that much like an improv team has a diverse set of backgrounds and people that those folks are involved in the design as well, so that we can raise those concerns, we can hear those concerns, and we can talk through them as teachable moments 
and hopefully not fall into the folly that uh, a lot of uh, public companies have found themselves in in the last few years. <laughs> so do you have like a sort of mini retrospective or something after a session? I don't have a mini retrospective after a session. Uh, one exercise I do like to do, and I'm slowly introducing it though, is uh, what I've adopted the name as the Black Mirror exercise. And again, I can't take credit for coming up with that. I uh, also uh, unfortunately can't say who did, but it's basically write the write the anti-story of your product. I think it might be in the Google Playbook, might uh, reference uh, an exercise like this, but write about how a bad actor might use your system or something else. And I think that, acts as sort of a, a mid-exercise pseudo-retro to see, you know, what could have gone wrong or how might this be used wrong? We've actually done a whole episode on just that topic. <laughs> I must have missed that one. Now I'm embarrassed because I've been uh, catching up on the backlog. <laughs> That's sorry. We'll, we'll point you at it later. Um, but one of the things I did want to ask was there's a number of things you've talked about. Uh, follow your feed. Yes. And there's another one, uh, the Lara approach of listen, affirm, respond and act. All these things have a bias towards action. And is there a danger in doing this that you're just pouring on and doing things and not necessarily thinking through, is this the best idea or is this just a way of loosening up and getting lots of ideas? That's an interesting idea. And there's definitely, I think, the risk of actions always being solutions or actions always being uh, outcomes. I know you have uh, the episode on, you know, uh, outputs versus outcomes. And it's the idea that you can really focus the action is the, the process. What next steps are we taking to understand the risks further? What next steps are we taking to understand the business needs further? It's not necessarily what's the action that will let us be done but what's the action that will let us uh, be more informed? David, you also have a great story, and I can't remember exactly what it is, but you had this great story about a corn farmer. Would you mind sharing that one? Yeah, so uh, I referenced this one in the book as well. It's the story of a award-winning corn farmer who, when asked on you know, how he wins year in and year out, he notes that he shares his uh, the corn seed with all of his neighbors. And on the nose, that sounds sort of like a, you know, something that would negatively impact because if everyone else has good, strong growing corn, then how would this one farmer win? And what they pointed out was the wind doesn't understand property lines. The wind doesn't understand where my field ends and someone else's begins. And I think when we think about improvisation or product design, there's a lot of my team or my character needs to succeed so other people's don't look as good. My product, my idea needs to succeed at the risk or cost of a colleague's. And what we need to remember is sort of that notion of uh, the rising tide raises all ships. And if I can help my colleague look good in their role and their discipline with their idea, I'm part of that team and we can all support one another. So that was a nice anecdote uh, I found years ago that that has always stuck with me. It's a fantastic story. David, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great. Okay, so whatever you do tomorrow, don't mention improvisation. Okay, the first rule of Improvisation Club is not to mention improvisation. But it has been a while since we mentioned who we've got coming up next week. Do you want to spoil the surprise? <gasps> Ooh, is that allowed? Okay, yes, sure. I'm terrible at surprises anyway.
So next week, we have Jimena Almendares, who is VP International Expansion at Intuit, but previously was CPO at OKCupid. And she will be spilling the beans on what it takes to get a hot date. Not that we need any advice on that, do we? Exactly. No. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great week and don't forget to rate and review. The Product Experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Our hosts are me, that's Lily Smith, and Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Emily is ours alone, but we're happy to share Luke if you need someone to edit your own podcast. Hey, you can't share him too much. He's my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW. That's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg and plays bass in the band for letting us use the music. And sign up for your local Product Tank, a regular meetup in over 185 cities worldwide. There's probably one someone near you. And if there's not, you can start one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. Here's Global Coordinator Mark Abraham to tell you more about it. Product Tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world, driven by and for product managers. Whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, the whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips.